Our Father, thank you for the privilege of approaching your throne this evening. We thank you because uh, we have not believed cunningly devised fables, but that we can trust your word because you know the end from the beginning, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, you've inspired that word so that it's trustworthy. We ask, Lord, that as we study this very important lesson tonight, that your Holy Spirit will be with us and give us wisdom. Because we need wisdom from on high to understand, and not only to understand, but to receive. So we ask for your guidance. And we thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, did you notice uh, the handouts last night that um, were besides the lesson, the pictures of the seals, the tablets? Aren't those interesting? You know, I wish I had time to tell you the story about how I found those. I found them at the Andrews University Theological Seminary. Um, I wasn't looking for that particular book, and I don't know why my attention was attracted to it. The name of the book is uh, Ugaritica, uh, which are tablets which were discovered in Canaan, um, where Israel settled later on. And, uh, you know, great big books. The text is in French, and of course the tablets are in uh, Akkadian. And so um, I, I don't know what led me to look at those books except divine providence. And I found this is, not only, uh, this is not the only tablet that was found. There were multiple tablets found of covenants between a great king and a lesser king. And every single one of them has the same material written on both sides. And on one side is the seal of the great king who is making the covenant. And the seal is right in the center of the tablet. And interestingly enough, the very three things that are necessary for a seal are found, even though we can't read the language, uh, are found in that seal. The name of the king, his territory, and his function. And so we don't have to appeal to the uh, seal of the President of the, of the United States to prove that we would expect the seal to be in the center of the law. Uh, the seal was placed in the center of covenants back when the Ten Commandments were given, which I believe to be extremely significant because we're not arguing from the 20th century back. We're arguing from the very historical context of when the Ten Commandments were given. That's why this material is so significant. But tonight we want to study about, uh, in, we're getting a little bit of a ring, so maybe, Johnny, you can lower it just a little bit, just a tad bit, so that uh, we don't have that ring Okay, uh, let's get right into our lesson. That's good. Thank you. And by the way, don't miss Saturday night. What's our study Saturday night? The Battle of Armageddon. So if you want to know the, the real scoop about Armageddon, you're going to want to come. The subject of our lesson today is of critical importance. We will study the third and sixth chapters of Daniel and see how they relate to Revelation 13, 11 to 18. Once again, we will find that a knowledge of the Old Testament is of fundamental importance in the study of the book of Revelation. And let me just remark that uh, if you don't get anything out of this class, except the knowledge that there's no way you can understand Revelation without the Old Testament, the class will have been a success. And uh, if you understand that the stories of the Old Testament are literal, local stories 
which are fulfilled on a worldwide and spiritual sphere at the end of time, then the class will have really been worthwhile. And so uh, I hope that you've seen that most of the stories in Revelation uh, come from the Old Testament. And we have to understand the Old Testament. Now let's go to number one. According to Revelation 13, the time will come when the civil power of the United States, we've studied this, will command the nation to make what? An image to the beast. To which beast? The Roman Catholic papacy. Number two. The United States will also command all to what? To worship the beast. And whoever does not obey the command will be in danger of being killed. Now we need to understand that what's going to happen, the United States is not going to command us to go and kneel before the Pope. No, that, that, that's not what it's talking about. See, we worship whom we choose to serve. Isn't that right? When the Creator says, keep my Sabbath, that's the sign that you're serving me. That means we're worshiping Him. When the government of the United States says, keep Sunday, and you keep Sunday, you're keeping it in honor of the power that changed the day. And you're rejecting the Creator. So the issue is not one day versus another. The issue is whether you accept the authority of God or whether you accept the authority of the beast. The issue is whose authority will you accept? Are you understanding my point? Yes. It's not an issue of days. The day is only the way in which God can test which authority you accept. And by the way, those who say, well, you mean to say God is going to test our uh, loyalty to him by a day? Well, what's the problem? Didn't God test Adam and Eve with a tree? So if he could test Adam and Eve at the beginning with a tree, with an object, why can't he test the whole human race at the end with a day? There's really no difference. The, the day and the tree were simply a way in which God, God could test the loyalty of Adam and Eve and our loyalty to see whether we accept Satan's word or whether we strictly follow every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Number three, the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived has a mystic number, and that number is 666. Interesting, 666. That must be your social security number. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Number four, in order to understand the number of the beast, which is 666, we must first discover his what? His name. Because 666 is the number of his name. Now, how do you discover the number of a name? That's the key point. You know, do names have numbers? Not today, but in ancient times they did. Let's read the note. The ancients did not have Arabic numerals such as we do. What they did was give the letters of their alphabet a numerical value, and when they wanted to write a number, they used the letters as numbers. For example, in Greek, the alpha is one, beta is two, gamma is three, delta is four, epsilon is five, and so on. The Greek alphabet, each letter of the alphabet, has a numerical value. And when they wanted to write numbers, they would actually write the letters, and the letters were equivalent to numbers. So if you want to discover the number of the beast, you have, have to find a name, and you have to give that name, the letters of the name, a numerical value. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Raise your hand if you understand what I'm saying. Okay, good. Number five. 
The beast who was wounded by the sword received his power, his throne, and great authority from whom? From the dragon. What does the dragon represent? Represents Satan, yes, but but particularly it represents Rome, the power through whom Satan worked to try and kill Jesus when he was born. So in other words, the dragon that gives the beast his throne and authority is Rome, right? Does that mean that the beast is also Roman? Is the little horn Roman? Is the the, uh, man of sin Roman? Yes, we've already studied this, right? Now, why is this important? Let's read the note. The beast is Roman. So what number system must we use? Of course, it's cheating to use the Greek system on a Roman name. And so this beast is Roman. So we must use the Roman numeral system to discover the number of his name. The Romans invented a totally unique numbering system. It's unique in the world, even till this day. What they did was choose six letters to write all their numbers. And by the way, the M was not part of the original system that was established in the Roman Empire. It came in the Middle Ages. They added the M. Uh, The way that a thousand used to be written was uh, two Ds side by side. And I have some documents where I can show you how it was written before the M was adopted. But the Romans adopted only six characters. Now the interesting thing is the choice of these particular letters was not coincidental. If you add the six Roman numerals, did you do that? The total is 666. So they chose six letters whose number value is 666. This seems to indicate that whatever the number of the beast's name is, it must be derived by employing what? Roman numerals. Are you understanding me so far? Now, let's go to number six. Whatever his name is, it must be what? Blasphemous. Now, what is blasphemy? We've already studied this. Blasphemy is when a mere man claims that he is what? That he is God, and when he claims he has power to forgive sins in the name of Jesus. Interesting. So number six, whatever his name is, it must be blasphemous. Because Revelation 13.1 tells us that the beast has a blasphemous name on his heads. Now let's read the very important note that summarizes everything. Let's put everything together. The Roman beast raised up an image and commanded everyone to worship on pain of death. This Roman beast has a blasphemous name which must be discovered by giving the letters of his name a numerical equivalent. And this numerical equivalent must be found by using Roman numerals. Yes, Dallas. Um, when was the number system uh, The Roman numeral system? Uh, it was adopted before the birth of Christ, primarily by the Latin poets. Um, and, uh, you know, I could, I could I'd get some more information on that for you. And I, I have a lot, I have about 22 pages of material on, on numerology that I did not include in here. Uh, I have all kinds of uh, uh, pictures of numerology during the Middle Ages, Gnostic numerology. The number 666 is pervasive in antiquity. Among the Gnostics, it's, it's a very common number. Uh, among the, the, the Masons, the Freemasons, it is an interesting number. And by the way, it's the number of the serpent. Do you know where our, our sign, our hieroglyph 6, comes from? 
Originally, six was written this way. It's the sign of a coiled serpent is where the sign of our six comes from. And it might be coincidental, but in all of the romantic languages, six has the sound of a hissing serpent. But we won't get into that. I can prove that, by the way. Yeah, I, I, can, I can prove its uh, trajectory throughout history. But, um, you know, we ultimately know that the beast is, is worked upon by whom? By Satan. So the number 666 is really the number of Satan. But he gives it to his, uh, his vice-regent on earth, uh, the Roman Catholic papacy. Okay, so far so good? All right, let's go to the next section. The beast and his image in Daniel 3. As the story of Daniel 3 begins, literal Israel was captive in literal Babylon. Note, remember that which was literal and local in the Old Testament becomes what? Symbolic and worldwide in the end time. Is Babylon worldwide at the end of time? We studied that in our last lesson, did we not? The harlot Babylon sits on nations, multitudes, tongues, and peoples. Babylon is no local little Babylon over there where Saddam Hussein lives. It is a worldwide Babylon because it sits on worldwide waters, which means that the local Babylon of the Old Testament and the literal Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar becomes what? It becomes symbolic and it becomes worldwide. Are you understanding this principle? It's of critical importance. No way you can understand prophecy unless you un apply this principle. That's the reason why Bible inter uh, prof prophetic interpreters today, they're looking over to, they, when, when the Bible says temple, they say, see, temple, temple, that's the Jewish temple. And when the Bible says Israel, Israel, that's literal Israel. And when the Bible says, it says uh, Babylon, no, they don't say that. They say Babylon is universal. Now, how they can say Babylon is worldwide, but Israel is local is beyond my comprehension. But anyway, we have to apply this principle. So in other words, what is local and literal becomes symbolic and worldwide. Literal Babylon, literal Israel, the literal beast, the literal image, the literal valley, the literal furnace, heated literally seven times hotter, are to be understood symbolically and in a worldwide sense in the book of Revelation. And for those of you who say, well, the beast wasn't literal back in the Old Testament, if I remember correctly, Nebuchadnezzar uh, behaved like a beast, pretty much like a literal beast, for seven years. Interesting. Number two, Daniel 3 must be connected with Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, the head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, which was Babylon. But after Babylon, according to God's scenario, several other kingdoms were to arise, culminating with God's everlasting kingdom. Did Nebuchadnezzar like this? No. He says, you mean to say, I'm only the head of gold? I don't like God's perspective of history. And so what did Nebuchadnezzar do? Notice question number three. Nebuchadnezzar defied God's delineation of prophetic history. Did he try to change the times? How did Nebuchadnezzar try to change the times? Because God said that prophecy was going to be fulfilled this way. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no, it's not going to be fulfilled this way. It's going to be fulfilled that way. Did Nebuchadnezzar try to change God's prophetic times? He most certainly did. 
he's, he prefigures what the little horn later on tries to do because the little horn also tries to change God's prophetic calendar and was not successful because God has a remnant in the world that will not allow this system to be successful. And so Nebuchadnezzar defied God's delineation of prophetic history by setting up an image which was made of pure gold from head to foot. Now how do we know these two chapters are connected? Let's read the note. The king was actually attempting to change God's prophetic calendar of events. The connection between Daniel 2 and 3 is threefold. Number one, the same Hebrew word for image is used in both chapters. Number two, the word gold in both chapters is identical. And number three, the expression set up in Daniel 3.1 is the same as in Daniel 2.44 where the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. In other words, God says in Daniel 2, I'm going to set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And Nebuchadnezzar sets up his image saying, my kingdom will be everlasting. He's defying the God of heaven and his prophetic scenario. Just like is happening in the Christian world today. Sad. You know, you go to bookstores today. I'm amazed. As I look at the books on the shelves, there is not one book in Christian bookstores which will give you the real and correct interpretation of Bible prophecy. That's another reason why Protestantism has become the false prophet. Because the prophetic scenario that they're presenting is a totally false prophetic scenario. And I know this is strong words, but it's the truth. We've studied everything in a disciplined way in this seminar, haven't we? From within the text. Studying the literary structure, following the sequence of powers, understanding the symbols in the light of the way the Bible interprets those symbols. But you won't find a book in any bookstore, any Christian bookstore, other than the Adventist Book Center where prophecy is interpreted from the perspective that we're studying here tonight. In other words, God's system of interpreting prophecy has been almost totally effaced from, from planet Earth. That's serious. And because the interpretation is, is uh, looking to the Middle East and it's looking to the Russians and it's looking to the Arabs and it's looking to the Jerusalem temple and it's looking over there, prophetic events are fulfilled right in our midst and people can't see it because they're looking in the wrong place. How many people in the world know that the issues are going to be over Sabbath and Sunday? Keeping God's commandments or not keeping God's commandments. Most people are saying that the issues are going to be fighting over the oil in the Middle East. And it's going to be an ethnic war between Arabs and Jews. My Bible tells me that the fight is between those who are followers of Jesus and those who are followers of the beast. And those who follow Jesus, because they love him, they will keep his commandments. And the wicked will also keep the commandments, but not the commandments of God, the commandments of the beast. So the issue is between two sets of commandments. Yes, Gene? Uh, it's interesting to find that that Trinity Foundation that supposedly you referred to Yes. Before, uh, that they do have a following historical uh, interpretation of prophecy group of Presbyterians. Sure. But it's a very small group apparently out of the whole Presbyterian uh, denomination. They're, but they're semi-historicist. In other words, they take the semi-historical view because for them right now we are in the millennium. 
We have a lesson where we're going to study the thousand years of Revelation 20. This whole idea of the rapture, all of this Middle East scenario, boils down to the way in which you understand the thousand years. If you believe that the thousand years are going to be spent on earth, you will buy all of this scenario that's being taught. If you believe that the thousand years God's people are going to be in heaven, the scenario which will, you will adopt will be the scenario that we're studying here. It's that simple. And when we deal with the thousand years, we're going to understand that specific point. And by the way, the Christian world is setting itself, setting itself up for a tremendous deception by believing that Christ is going to come to this earth to set up his kingdom. Because the Bible says that Satan is going to counterfeit the second coming of Christ. And most of Christianity is going to accept that counterfeit second coming of Christ because they're expecting Christ to come and reign on earth. But we won't get into that anymore right now. What we're talking about, folks, is a matter of life and death. If you believe that we're living in the last days, what we're studying is of critical importance. I believe we're living in the last days. I believe September 11 changed things tremendously. It's a watershed event. And uh, things are precipitating, one thing right after another. Okay, now let's go to number four. The dimensions of Nebuchadnezzar's golden image were what? 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Did you read the additional sheet? Now, I'm going to go through this very quickly because we don't have a lot of time. That's the reason why I wrote it on that sheet for you to read. So the ancient Babylonians established what we know as the sexagesimal system. They established the system of the universe, the circle of the universe having 360 degrees, and the cycle, the yearly cycle of 360 days, and of course the 60 minutes uh, to an hour, and the 60 seconds to a minute, and so on. And uh, the interesting thing is, for them, 360 degrees represented all the universe, 360 days represented all time, all space and all time, in other words. And what they did was they established 36 gods in their pantheon, pantheon to rule over the 360 degrees of space and the 360 days of time. And basically, they gave 10 days and 10 degrees of space to each one of these 36 gods. In other words, each, each one of the 36 gods reigned over 10 days of time and 10 degrees of space. So you see that the number 360 is related to the number 36, but there's more. You see, if you add the numbers 1 to 36, and I don't know if you took the time to do this on a calculator to check me out to see whether I'm telling you the truth or not. If you add the numbers from 1 to 36, what is the total? The total is 666. Now, there was one god that the Babylonians did not include in their pantheon, and that was the sun god. The sun god was considered to be the father of all gods, from which all gods emanated. In other words, the 36 gods actually uh, emanated or came from the sun god. So the sun god was the ruler of all. In fact, the 36 the 36 uh, minor gods were actually contained in the great god because 666 was the summary number of all of the gods. And 666 became known as the great number of the sun. The great number of the sun. Uh, I don't know whether you looked at the illustrations also of some of these medallions that the, that the priests used on chains and put around their necks. 
you know, on one side you have a, uh, you have a hexagon, and inside the hexagon you have a, a square, and inside that large square you have 36 smaller squares, uh, and each one of those squares has a number from 1 to 36, and very frequently under that large square you have the number 666. Now on the other side of the medallion, which the priests used, uh, frequently you have a lion, and you have one of them illustrated there in the material that you received, and the, the head of the lion is what? It's the sun. And the mane are what? Are the rays of the sun. What color is the lion? The lion is gold. The lion is yellow. It's the king of beasts. Just like the sun is the king of heavenly bodies. What is the animal that represents Babylon in Daniel 7? Isn't that interesting? A lion. What period of the year is the hottest in astrology? We're not into astrology. But the hottest period of the year is... Uh, governed by the constellation of Leo the Lion, July and August. Do you know why Leo is July and August? Because July and August are the ho hottest period of the year. Interesting. And so you have this, this whole system of Babylonian astrology coming through here. Now if you multiply 60 by 6, what is the total? 360, which is a very sacred number which reduced to the 36 gods and the 36 gods altogether uh, coming to 666, the number 666 is hidden behind the dimensions of the image. Are you understanding what I'm saying? You need to read that material because that material is supremely important. Now, let's go to number five. So is, is sun worship involved in some way in Daniel 3? Yes. By the way, do you know why the image was made of gold? Interesting that Babylon is symbolized by gold and a lion, which is gold. And that on these medallions you have a lion with a mane. And the mane are the rays of the sun. In other words, the, the symbols that are used are solar symbols in the book of Daniel. Because uh, when Nebuchadnezzar set up that image of gold, which by the way the ancients called the dew of the sun because they believed that gold had dripped down from the sun. You know, in pre-scientific societies, we know that, this, that gold did not drip down from the sun. But they believe that, and therefore they called gold the dew of the sun. So when Nebuchadnezzar raised up that image, he was commanding everybody to worship the sun god, whose number is 666. Very significant. Number five. The central point of contention in the story of Daniel 3 was? Worship. worship. Did you notice the number of times that it's used? The word? The key question was, will all people worship the image of the beast whose number is 666 and whose insignia is the sun? Number six. Also at issue were the commandments of God versus the commandments of men. The Ten Commandments are divided into how many tables? Do you notice that there in Exodus 31:18, God gave Moses two tables of the testimony written with the finger of Moses? Oh, thank you. You're slow tonight, but you, you <laughs> caught me. That's good. That's good. I'll, I'll say things wrong once in a while because I want to see if you're with me. Okay. So, basically, the first four commandments described our duty towards whom? Towards God. Of course. Uh, if you love God, you won't have other gods. If you love God, you won't make images. If you love God, you won't use His name in vain. And if you love God, you'll keep His Holy Sabbath. First four commandments describe our duty to God. Our relationship with God has nothing to do with our relationship with our fellow human beings. 
Now, the last six delineate our duty towards whom? Towards our fellow human beings. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to kill him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal his wife and commit adultery with her. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal his property. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to bear false witness against him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to covet what belongs to your neighbor. In other words, the last six commandments describe our duty towards our fellow human beings. But the question is, which table was particularly at the forefront in Daniel 3? Let me ask you in Revelation, which is the table which is particularly in controversy? It's the first table. You ask most Christians, you say, uh, is it okay to kill? No. Is it okay to steal? No. Is it okay to bear false witness? No. Is it okay to commit adultery? No. It is, is it okay to beat up on your parents? No. Is it okay to covet? No. Can you worship idols? No. Should you be careful about, uh, uh, should you take God's name in vain? No. Should you break the Sabbath? Yes. <laughs> now you tell me, how, what sense does that make? Particularly considering that the Sabbath is the, at the center of God's law. It's the seal in the law of God, as we studied last night. Makes no sense. The Sabbath commandment is the only one that identifies the lawgiver. By name, by title, and by territory. The three things that are necessary to have a seal. The first table is particularly at issue in Daniel 3 as well as in Revelation. Let's go to number 7. There was a union of religion with the civil power in Daniel 3. Would you agree with that? Yes. What is uh, Nebuchadnezzar legislating? He's legislating a religious observance, isn't he? Yes. He's the civil ruler, right? But he's legislating religion. Is that legitimate? Nope. All the guests at the dedication of the image were political figures, but the decree to worship was of a religious nature. Interesting. Note, refusal to worship the image was not only considered an attack upon the religion of Babylon, but also as what? Treason against the political authority of the king. So in other words, by not obeying, they were violating the law of both church and state. Number eight, Nebuchadnezzar's decree was universal in that period of time. Of course, we understand universal. It means that it applied in all of its kingdom. Because it says all peoples, what? Nations and languages. Is that similar terminology to what we find in Revelation? Yes. We're to what? We're to bow and worship the image. By the way, by worshiping the image, who were they honoring? They were honoring the sun god, but they were also honoring the one who had raised the image, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, number nine, whoever did not worship the image was to be killed by being thrown into a fiery furnace. And later on, we'll see that that fiery furnace represents something. It's symbolic, especially the seven times. Number 10, there was a small faithful remnant who insisted on worshiping God and keeping his commandments. Let me ask you, do worship and the commandments go together? Yes. Particularly worship in the first four commandments. Yes. Let's, let's take a look. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Does that have to do with worship? Yes. Thou shalt not make an image to worship. Does that deal with worship? Yes. 
Thou shalt not take the name, the awesome name of the Lord your God in vain. Does that deal with worship and respect for God? You shall keep the sign of the Creator, the Sabbath. Does that deal with worship? So whenever you talk about worship, you have to connect it with the Ten Commandments. They're linked. Which means that the controversy was over worship and God's law. Is that going to be the issue in Revelation? Or I suppose in Revelation the issue is they're going to be fighting for the oil of the Middle East. And the final war of Armageddon is going to be when, when the Russians and the Arabs join up with Saddam Hussein and they dry up the waters of the literal river Euphrates because of course they don't have airplanes and helicopters. And so they have to dam up the river to get across it. Come on, folks. In the day of modern technology, so that they could then go west and invade literal Israel because they're anti-Semitic. You tell me, what does that have to do with worship? What does that have to do with God's law? What does that have to do with accepting or rejecting Jesus as your Savior? It's a distraction. It is not Christ-centered. It is political and ethnic-centered. And therefore, it's false prophecy because in order for prophecy to be true, it has to be centered in Christ because Christ is the center of Bible prophecy. Number 11. There was an apostasy at the Valley of Dura. Do you think there were only three Hebrews there? No. Read Daniel 1. There were many more Hebrews that went through the school of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, you'll notice here that in 2 Kings 24, 14 to 17, it speaks about King Zedekiah. And in Jeremiah 51, verse 59, it says that he took a trip to Babylon in the year 594 of his reign. I wonder whether perhaps that trip to Babylon wasn't for this dedication of this image. And it's mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. At least we know that Zedekiah went to Babylon. And we know that there were other people there. What did they do? What did the other Hebrews do when the command was given to worship? They bowed and they worshiped. Let me ask you, how many people do you suppose were there at the dedication of the image? Ten or fifteen? The Bible indicates that there were people from every nation, tongue, and people. There were multitudes there. But of the multitudes, only three young men stood firm. You know, sometimes I ask people, I say, um, what church do you belong to? So, well, I belong to such and such a church. And they ask me, what church do you belong to? I say, oh, I belong to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And they say, and how many members does your church have? I say, oh, about 12 million. And they say, oh, ours has one billion. <laughs> Listen, if the majority had the truth, then the devil would have the truth. Because most people are in the devil's camp. Don't go by numbers. Look at the truth. The majority has never been with God. In the days of Noah, there were millions on planet Earth. And only eight went into the ark. And I could show you, in the days of Elijah, Elijah and 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal among hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions by this time in Israel. So don't look at the biggest church or the ones that has the best programs and the ones that has, uh, that, that has the most pastors and the best buildings. No, that, that doesn't count at all. That's not important. What's important is being faithful to God's truth. Amen. It's the message, not the meeting. That's the message, yes. It's the message. Number 12. Those who accused the three Hebrew worthies were the Chaldeans. Interesting. 
If you read chapter 2, the references in chapter 2, the Chaldeans were the religious cadre of Babylon, in other words, the elite of Babylon. It was these religious leaders who accused the three young men before the king. Were they jealous of Daniel? And were they jealous of the three young men? Later on we'll see that they were jealous of Daniel. They now wanted to use the civil power to kill them because the three young men did not worship the king's gods. Number 13. Here's where Nebuchadnezzar made his big mistake. When the three young men refused to disobey God and practice false worship, the king was filled with what? Fury. Fury. Kind of reminds me of Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God. Here it says that when the commandment of the king is not kept to practice false worship, what happened? The king was filled with wrath or with anger. The king defied the God of heaven by challenging the young man, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Ooh, he made a big mistake there because now he's involving God in the story. Whoa! When the powers of the earth say, and who is going to deliver you from my hands? By the way, in Revelation 13, in verse 4, it says, and great is the beast, and who shall be able to fight against him? Almost the identical terminology that we find here. Who will be able to fight against the beast is what they're going to say. Everybody's going to have to submit and subject themselves. But there will be a remnant at the end of time. And God is bringing that remnant together today. Number 14. These three young men went through a great time of trouble. Did they not? In which their faith was severely tested. How would you have felt if you were going to be cast into a fiery furnace? It was actually a kiln where they baked bricks. We know because they found kilns as they've uh, excavated Babylon. How hot do you need to have the fire in a kiln? Oh, my lands. And if it's seven times hotter? Oh. The whole world was against them. And yet they took their stand for God. They had to face a furnace heated. What? seven times more than it was usually heated. By the way, that doesn't mean that Nebuchadnezzar had a thermometer. And he says, now we usually heat this to 300 degrees three times seven, 21. 2,100. Really, the number seven represents what? Totality. In other words, he heated it as hot as it could be heated is what it's saying. Number 15. One promise which they undoubtedly claimed was Isaiah 43, verse 2, written some 150 years before. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. They must have claimed that promise because they knew Scripture. Daniel studied Scripture. Now, let's read the note. Character is not formed in a crisis. Character is exhibited in a crisis. The three young men had made up their minds long before the crisis arrived. Had they not? When the king brings them before him, he says, I'll give you another chance. They say, don't bother. Our minds are made up. By the way, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll find that they passed a little test. It was a test over, over eating. See, they weren't going to eat the unclean foods and they weren't going to drink the wine of the king. 
And so they said to the cook, they said, uh, why don't you give us uh, vegetables? See, they were vegetarians. Uh, why don't you give us vegetables uh, to eat and water to drink? And the cooks, you know, their lives were not in danger. It was the cook's life that was in danger. <laughs> the cook says, hey, if I do that, what's going to happen is you're going you're gonna to look pale and skinny. And when the king sees you that way, he's going to ask, what's wrong with the cook? And I'm going to lose my head. And Daniel and his friends say, try us uh, for 10 days. Just 10 days. And the Bible says that after 10 days, the vegetarian diet made them look more robust. And they were more intelligent. And they were more spiritually in tune. And when test time came in the University of Babylon, they were 10 times better than all of the other wise men in the kingdom. I guess going back to God's original diet, in Genesis 1.29, which was a vegetarian diet, must not have been a very bad idea. Uh, Queenie. Okay, was that the same? Peter Nicholas had his hand up. Okay, good. See, all great minds run in the same track. <laughs> okay. Now, um... He was faithful in the little, is faithful in what? In much. They were faithful in the small things, and therefore they were faithful in the much. One of my favorite texts is Jeremiah 12, verse 5, where it says, where God says, hey, if you ran with, with men and you got tired, how do you think you're ever going to run with the horses? If you're not faithful in the little things, what makes you think that you're going to be faithful when the big trials come? Some people say, oh, when the time of trouble comes, I'll stand even if they kill me. But if you're not being faithful to God, Day to day, moment to moment, what makes you think that suddenly you're going to change? It's like, for, for example, some people say, you know, Pastor, I don't have enough money to return my tithe. But when the Lord asks me to give it all up for him, I will. What makes you think that if you're not willing to return 10% now, that suddenly you're going to give it all up later? He who is faithful in the little will be faithful in much. Number 16. The flames meant to consume the three young men actually what? After they actually killed them. The battle of Armageddon ultimately will not be a battle between human beings and God. Or even human beings that are on Satan's side against the people of God. Ultimately we're going to find that the, the waters of the wicked people of Babylon are going to arrive, arise to kill their own religious leaders. That is the battle of Armageddon. And we're going to prove it in the next lesson. They're going to be so angry that they've been deceived by the wine of Babylon that they're going to arise. The ones that they praised and they said, oh, what a great preacher and, and all of this. Those are the ones that are going to arise to destroy. See, I don't want to be destroyed, so I better preach the truth. <laughs> Number 17. The three young men were not the heroes of this story. Were they? See, we say, dare to be a Daniel. Well, okay, sure. But listen, without the three young men having gods, they would have been burned. The hero of this story is God. Nebuchadnezzar had asked, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Jesus answered this challenge by personally coming into the furnace to deliver the three worthies. The appearance of the fourth being of the furnace was like the Son of God. Imagine Jesus himself came into the furnace with them. 
Oh, praise the Lord. Do you know why? Yes. Because Daniel had previously spoken to Nebuchadnezzar about the God of heaven. In Daniel chapter 2. That's how he knew. But it clearly indicates in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel had talked to the king about the God of heaven and so on. And so, because he had described the God of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar knew uh, what he looked like. Yes. His appearance is like the Son of God. Yes. Um, you know, when you compare uh, Daniel 3 with Daniel 12 and verse 1, we're going to come to that a little bit later on, where it speaks about Michael standing up to deliver his people. Who is that person, Michael, who will deliver his people? We've already studied it. It's Jesus. Daniel 12.1 is the end time fulfillment of Daniel 3. See, the standing up of Michael to deliver his people in Daniel 12 verse 1 is the final end time fulfillment of Daniel chapter 3. But let's, let's go on. We'll come, we'll come to that. Okay, these three young men were not delivered from tribulation, but rather in the midst of tribulation. Were they taken out before the tribulation? Or did they go through it? They went through. Are God's people going to go through the tribulation at the end of time? Are the, fly, are the plagues going to, going to afflict them? No. What makes you think that if God was able to protect the three young men from the fire, he's not able to protect his people at the end time from the plagues? Okay, let's go to number 18. Well, let's read the note. The word deliverance is used four times in Daniel 3. It is also used four times in Daniel 6. Finally, it is used in Daniel 12, verse 1. The only places where the word deliver is used in Daniel. Where God's end time people will be delivered in the time of Jacob's trouble. That's the, the end time, isn't it? Obviously, the theme of deliverance is central in the book of Daniel. Number 18. After the king recognized the God of heaven, he gave a new decree that whoever spoke anything amiss against the God of the three young men was to be cut in pieces and their houses made an ash heap. Question. Was this new decree legitimate or illegitimate? Why? What government has the right to tell you that you have to worship a certain God? Did Nebuchadnezzar learn what this whole thing was all about? Not at this point he didn't. Because immediately afterwards, he's enforcing another decree, this time that everybody has to worship the true God. But you see, the government can't tell us to worship a false God, and it can't tell us to worship the true God either, because that's not the government's business. The first four commandments have to do with my relationship with God, and I have to respond only to God. The civil power has nothing to do with those. The moment the civil power starts talking, for example, about prayer, we've got to legislate prayer, off limits. Because prayer is an activity of my relationship with God. The moment the government starts talking about giving our taxes for charitable, for a charitable purpose, wrong. Government, what's the government doing? Taking the government's money and giving it to God. Last I knew, the way to finance God's kingdom is by tithes. And the way to finance Caesar's kingdoms is by taxes. So let's keep taxes and tithes separate. Because once you get the government giving money for charitable purposes, you have the government controlling the charity to whom it gave the money. 
And if you don't believe it, start taking the money. So it was illegitimate, wasn't it? A question. Yes. Is that the word legitimate means legal? Yes. Therefore, it is legitimate because the word of the king was lost. Okay, I, what I meant to say, you should have been a lawyer. <laughs> what I meant to see, say, is this legitimate in the sight of God? I should have put that there. Or was it illegitimate? In the sight of God, it was illegitimate. In the sight of the king, it was what? Legitimate because he, had, he was the absolute ruler. And he had the civil power. Okay, let's go to Daniel's trial, chapter 6. Daniel had an excellent what? Spirit. Even the kings of Babylon recognized that in Daniel dwelt the... Spirit of the Holy God. Did Daniel have the Holy Spirit? Yes. yes. How was that proven? By his, by his life. By the fruit of his life. Everybody knew that Daniel had a special spirit. Even the pagan kings recognized it. Even Belshazzar, the apostate king, of whom we're going to study in our lesson on Saturday night. Because if you want to understand Armageddon, you have to go back to the fall of Babylon in the Old Testament. Even they recognized that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Will God's end time people be filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes. Oh, yes. Daniel had the gift of prophecy and he was given what? Visions. Must that mean that the end time remnant is also going to have the gift of prophecy? You see, Daniel is a symbol of the end time remnant. Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are symbols of the end time remnant. Those who are faithful to God. So, we need to look at the character of Daniel and that's the type of character that God's people are going to have at the end of time. Are you following me? That's why I put all of this here. Daniel had no what? He had no fault. Because he was what? Because he was faithful. Number five. Number five. Four. Daniel was faithful to God's what? God's law. Primarily the first table. Daniel preferred to die rather than break God's, God's commandments. Did you notice the arguments of his, uh, the arguments of his enemies? They said, you know, this guy is just so perfect. His life is exemplary. He fulfills his duty, duties to the king, to the civil power perfectly. The only way we're going to get him is because of the law of his God. Is that same argument going to be used at the end of time? Against God's people? I would hope that we learn to live the life of God now. So that later on they won't say, oh, this guy is a nasty character. He loses his temper all the time. And have other reasons to condemn us. Other than just the fact that we are faithful to God's law. Number, number five. The central issue in Daniel 6 is what? Worship. Worship. And I'm going to preach on this on Sabbath, so I'm not going to amplify this very much. But the Constitution of the United States has two clauses. The First Amendment has two clauses. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Do you know that the two stories in Daniel 3 and 6 illustrate the two clauses of the Constitution? In Daniel 3, the king tries to establish religion. Whereas in Daniel 6, the king prohibits the free exercise of religion. Did you digest that? Because in Daniel 3, the king is saying, you've got to worship this way and this God. 
Whereas in Daniel chapter 6, he says, you can't worship the way you're accustomed to worship. In other words, you don't have free exercise to worship. And so really, you have the two clauses of the Constitution contained in these two stories. Are you with me or not? Yeah? Somewhat weak, yeah. <laughs> Number six. Daniel had a deep faith because we are told that he believed in his God. Did he have faith? The word believed is, is the word faith. His faith was not mere intellectual assent, but rather a deep trust, which led to unquestioning obedience. In Daniel 6.16, the king said that Daniel served his God. I like that. Continually. See the type of character that Daniel had? That's the kind of character we need to have. Number seven. What did Daniel do three times a day? He prayed. He had a deep personal prayer relationship with the Lord. See? He had faith. He kept God's commandments. He worshipped God. He had no fault. He had the gift of prophecy. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He prayed. Number eight. Because Daniel insisted on worshiping God in prayer, a what? See, the same idea of Revelation 13. A death decree was given against him. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. In other words, Daniel went through the tribulation, did he not? Why did God allow this? I love this beautiful quotation. In a fantastic book, The Story of the Prophets and Kings. Did God allow the enemies of Daniel to prevail over him for a little while? And over the three young men too? Why, why does God allow something like this? Let's read it. God did not prevent Daniel's enemies from casting him into the lion's den. He permitted evil angels and wicked men thus far to accomplish their purpose. But it was that he might make the deliverance of his servant more marked and the defeat of the enemies of truth and righteousness more complete. Was it spectacular the way God delivered Daniel and his friends? The whole world came to know about it. God had delivered Daniel and his friends before the crisis. You know, it wouldn't have caused the impact that it did. The last part of the quotation says, Through the courage of this one man who chose to follow right rather than policy, Satan was defeated and the name of God was to be exalted and honored. Praise the Lord. When we're faithful to God, we make God look good. And we're un when we're unfaithful to God, we make God look bad. That's why I like the story of Job. I wish we had time to talk about Job. That's a prophecy. You know the story of Job is a prophecy? All of the stories of the Old Testament are not only stories, they're prophecies. You say, well, why does God give us stories and make them prophecies? You know, for example, Daniel 3 and 6, the reason why God gave these, us these end-time prophecies, but as stories, is because God wants us to know that as he once delivered, he will deliver. See, if God simply said, well, someday a beast is going to raise his image and he's going to make everybody worship and whoever doesn't worship is going to be killed, but hang in there, I'll be with you. He says, all right, okay, he'll be with me. But, you know, when, when we're going through the crisis, God will say, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Did I let them down? When the beast raised up the image and commanded everyone to worship? And the king gave a death decree? Did I come through? Yeah. I will remember these stories. 
And these stories will, will be a comforting and strengthening experience for us. That's the reason why God made the stories prophecies. So that we know that the God who acted in the past is the God who will act in the future. Oh, praise the Lord. Nice to hear that. Amen. Number 10. Daniel's enemies suffered the same fate they intended for Daniel. They were cast into the lion's den and they were eaten before they even reached the bottom of the den. Boy, some people say, well, you know the reason why the lions didn't eat Daniel is because they weren't hungry. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Number 11. As in Daniel 3, the key word in Daniel 6 is what? Deliver. The hero of this story is not Daniel, but rather God. If God had not intervened to deliver Daniel, he would have been cat food. <laughs> Big cat food. Number 12. After this experience, King Darius gave a decree that every dominion of his kingdom said what? To tremble and what? And fear before the God of Daniel. Was this decree, from God's perspective, legitimate or illegitimate? Huh? Illegitimate. No government can tell me, fear the God of the Hebrew. Only God can make me fear God. Or persuade me to fear God better. The government can't do that. The government is not in the business of religion. Our founding fathers understood that. And no matter how slightly you join church and state, ultimately it does not bring the state closer to, the, to God, it alienates the church from God. Yes. Because they participated in the plot. It's like, for example, why was the family of Achan stoned? You know, when he took the Babylonian garment and the gold and the silver and hid it under his tent? Because all of his family participated in it and they knew what was going on. Okay, now, let's go to the next section. The end time fulfillment of Daniel 3 and 6. We'll go through this quickly. In the end time, many of God's people will be captive in Babylon. Is this right? Because the mighty angel from heaven cries out, Come out of her, my people. For just like in the Old Testament, God's people will be captive in Babylon. Number two, God's people will have to gain the victory over the beast. Was there a beast in Daniel 3? Yes. And his image. Was there an image in Daniel 3? And his mark. That's a little more difficult. What would be the mark in Daniel chapter 3? No, the mark of the beast. The image was made of what? What were they worshipping? And what was the number? That related to the end time crisis? Is the apostasy going to have anything to do with sun? Is it going to be following a system whose number is 666? Yes. Number three. Satan's warfare against God's people will involve the commandments of God. Thought question. Which table of God's law will especially be at stake? The first table of law. Read, read Revelation 14. The first angel says, Worship he who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. And then the third angel's message says, Woe to he who worships the beast or his image. So the first message says, Worship the true God. And the third message says, beware of worshiping the false one. 
So the issue is what? God's commandments and worship. Number four. Another core issue in this conflict will be what? Worship to the Creator or worship to the beast. Will there be a union of church and state? Yes. I hope you read those texts. The harlot commits fornication with whom? With the kings of the earth. Uh, isn't this interesting? You have this in the story of Elijah. You have it in the story of John the Baptist. In these stories, you always have a fornication uh, of the religious power with the king. With the political power. Number six. The decree to practice false worship will be what? Worldwide. Worldwide. The whole what? World. World will marvel and follow after the beast. The apostate trinity will gather the kings of the earth and of the whole world to fight against God and the person of his people. The harlot sits on all nations and God's final message goes to every nation, tribe, tongue and people. Is this a universal crisis? Yes, it is. Just like in the days of Daniel. Number seven. Those who worship, who refuse to worship the image of the beast will be sentenced to what? To death. Is that the same thing as in the days of Daniel? Yes. The devil and his followers will be filled with rage against God's people. Number eight. Many, and by the way, we're going to study Matthew 24. That's our next uh, lesson. No, not our next lesson, the one on Sunday night. We're going to deal with Matthew 24. Uh, so you don't want to miss that. Many who claim to serve God at that time will forsake the faith. Speaking about this time, Jesus said that the love of many would what? would grow cold. And by the way, something can't grow cold unless it was hot before. Did you catch that point? Priceless. <laughs> something cannot grow cold unless it was hot. So is there going to be an apostasy? And by the way, did you notice the note? This remark of Jesus about love becoming cold comes immediately after he has spoken the following words. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be what? What does that mean, many will be offended? Means that many that were on Christ's side would what? Would leave him. It's the same word that's used where Jesus spoke to the disciples and he said, many, uh, he said, uh, you tonight will be what? Offended of me. In other words, it's talking about people who are going to abandon the faith. And will hate one another. Number nine. Thought question. Who do you suppose will be the ringleaders against God's people at the end? The religious leaders. What makes you think that it's going to be any different than in the Old Testament? It was the religious leaders who accused Daniel and his friends. It was the religious leaders who hated Jesus and encouraged the crowd to cry out for his crucifixion. You can read that in the gospel. It says that the, that the scribes and the Pharisees encouraged the people to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. It was the, if it hadn't been for the leaders, there would have been a tremendous revival and reformation in the Jewish nation. It was the religious leaders who led out in the Inquisition. During the Middle Ages, it will be the religious leaders who will deceive people into following this system at the end of time. That's why you need to study your Bible for yourselves. Vitally important. Number ten. God's people will go through a severe period of what? 
of trouble and tribulation. This is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And in Daniel 12 verse 1 it's called the time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. That's the end time tribulation, right? By the way, do you know why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble? You have to go back, you have to look at, up the references that we have in the lesson. You have to go back to Genesis 32. Jacob was on his way back to Canaan. See, it, uh, I wish I could tell you the whole story of Jacob and how it's symbolic. The whole story is tremendous. Because of his sin, he had to leave his home. And he ended up in the house of this conniving, wicked, malevolent Laban, cheating Laban. There's no better symbol of Satan than the character of Laban. If you really read his character. And there, there Jacob was in the house of Laban for 20 years. And finally he decided it's time to go back home. Just like when God's people at the end of time, after spending their time in the house of Satan, will say it's time to go home. And right before he enters the land of Canaan, he enters home. He hears that his brother Esau is coming with 300 men. Oh, thank you very much. With 400 men. <laughs> Boy, you're so sharp. And what is his brother's intention? His brother's intention is to kill him. Because he has stolen his wife. That's right. And so what does Jacob do? Oh, he goes out by himself. He starts struggling in prayer with God. Because he thinks that his sin that he committed 20 years before is so great that God is not going to protect him from his brother. His brother is going to come and destroy him and destroy the whole family. He pours out his heart in God and says, Lord, forgive, deliver you. That's the very word that is used in Genesis 32 if you read. Deliver me, Lord. And as he's praying fervently to God, suddenly a being comes and starts wrestling with Jacob. And by the way, the name Jacob means supplanter. Someone who took somebody else's place by deception. <laughs> it fit his character perfectly. See, but the thing is, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He deceived his brother, and Laban, Laban got him. And deceived him many times. And so he struggles and he fights all night. And when the sun is about to come up, the being that he's fighting with says, let me go, because... The sun is coming up. And Jacob, you know, by this time he knows that he's not fighting a mere human being. In fact, the, the angel, he's really fighting with Michael. He's really struggling with, with the same angel with Michael of Daniel 12 and verse 1. When God's people are delivered from the time of Jacob's trouble. When the wicked are coming to destroy them. And they will be pouring out their house, hearts to God for protection. And Jacob... He says to this being, I will not let you go unless you give me the assurance of your blessing. And Michael says, let me go. He says, no way. I will not let you go until you bless me. Give me the assurance of your presence. And the Bible says that not only did, the, did Michael with Christ bless him there, but it also says that Michael said, your name will no longer be called Jacob. From now on, your name will be called Israel, which means Prince of God, because you have fought with God and with men, and you have overcome. See, this is where revelation comes from. He that overcometh 
It says in the message to each one of the churches, He that overcometh, I will give to sit with me on my throne. And I overcame and sat with my father in his throne. So what does it mean to be Israel? Listen, a real Israelite is the Israelite that has the same, that has the same experience as Jacob. So in the end time, don't look to literal Israel, those people who don't believe in Christ. In order to be Israel, you have to have the experience of the first Israel. Well, so much for that. Number 11. This time of trouble is the period of the what? Isn't that interesting? The furnace heated seven times hotter and they have a period of seven last plagues, which is the worst period in the history of the world. Just like the oven was heated seven times hotter than ever before, this time of trouble shall be the worst in the history of the world. By the way, does Matthew 24, 21 talk about this same time of trouble? So I guess Matthew 24 must be addressing the same issues as Daniel Revelation. God's people's faith will be what? Severely tested. Their enemies will be allowed to prevail for a season. But in the end, God will deliver them. The same author, now speaking not about Daniel, but about the end time, says this. For a time the oppressors will be permitted to triumph over those who know God's holy commandments. To the last. God permits Satan to reveal his character as a liar, an accuser, and a murderer. Thus the final triumph of his people is made more marked, more glorious, more full and complete. Ha! God in delivering his people will be honored and will be glorified. Number 12. God refines us in the... See what you know what the furnace represents? The furnace furnace represented the refining of character. You know what? After those three young men came out of the furnace, do you think anything or anyone in the whole wide world could ever shake their faith in God ever again? Their character was settled forever. You see, what the fire does is it, it, it it's so hot that it burns off the dross. Every earthly dependence. They had to depend only on God. None on self. That's what's going to happen during the time of trouble. We have to depend totally on God and none on self. We have to learn to do that now. God refines us in the furnace of affliction so that we might come forth as what? Pure gold. Gold represents character. During his trial, Job said, when he has what? Tested me or tried me. Speaking about a furnace. I shall come forth as what? As gold. Job says, I know I'm suffering right now. I'm going through the furnace. But I know that when this is over, I'm going to come out as what? Gold. Number 13. The hero of the end time story is whom? God. When the king of the north and his cohorts go out with great fury to destroy and what? And kill many. See the context of the death decree again in Daniel 11? In our next class, we're going to study more about Daniel 11 because the king of the north is the same as the little horn, is the same as the beast, is the same as the man of sin, is the same as the harlot. They all represent the same thing. When the king of the north and his cohorts go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many, what will be the only protection of God's people? You see, as Nebuchadnezzar went out to annihilate these, at the end time, the wicked will go out to annihilate God's people. 
As in the days of Daniel, Jesus himself came into the furnace to deliver the three young men. So Michael will stand up for his people and he will deliver them in the midst of the time of trouble. Notice, the word deliver is used only in three places in Daniel, chapters 3, 6, and 12. Chapters 3 and 6 provide the local historical examples of what will take place on a global scale at the end of time. Is that clear in your mind? Yes? Good. Now, the end time remnant of Jesus. Will we have the same characteristics as Daniel if we're going to go through that period? Take a look. Like Daniel, God's end time remnant would be a, be a people of what? Of what? That's not the word I'm looking for. Of prayer. I wish we had time to talk about this parable. It takes me an hour. Talking about the end time. A time of trouble. And the purpose of this parable is, Jesus says, uh, the, uh, the, actually Luke says, that the reason why Jesus taught this parable is to teach us that we should always pray and never faint. Hey? God's people will be a people of prayer. They will be filled with the Holy what? Spirit, of course, because if the harvest of the earth is matured by the three angels' messages, the three angels' messages must have been united with the power of the Holy Spirit. They will have the what? Faith of Jesus. And will keep what? The commandments of God. See how they're going to be just like Daniel? The remnant of God will also have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. They will have the gift of prophecy in their midst. By the way, there's only one book that has all of this scenario that I'm sharing with you. All in one book. And that's the book that was given to you on opening night. The great controversy between Christ and Satan. You need to read that book. It's a real eye-opener. It presents the prophecies from a historical perspective, like we're doing in this seminar. By the way, she wrote that. That was published over 90 years ago. When none of the things that she says in the book were happening. But when you read that book, it's like reading the newspaper today. It's amazing. How did she know? Lucky guess. <laughs> I don't think so. Number two, the remnant of God will also have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. They will worship the God who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters, and they will be without what? Same expression as with Daniel. They will be without fault before the throne of God. I guess we have to get down to business, don't we? and get our spiritual life in order final point the number of the beast's name we started the lesson with this we began this lesson with some comments about the beast's name and number we have already seen that the beast represents the Roman Catholic system the leaders of this system must have a blasphemous name whose numerical equivalent is 666 in what language? In Latin language, yes, Rome, Roman language. What is that name? I believe the best option is Vicarious Philly Day, which is used in Roman Catholic publications as one of the official titles 
of the Pope. And by the way, there are others that when you add up the letters, they also give you 666. I won't get into that right now, but I believe that this particular name is a blasphemous name. This name, which for some time was worn on the papal tiara, that is on the triple crown that the Pope has. By the way, do you know what the triple crown represents? Represents that he's king of heaven, earth, and the subterranean region. That's what it means. The triple crown that he wears. Now, this name, which for some time was worn on the papal tiara, means one who occupies the place of, or one who represents the Son of God. This is a particularly blasphemous name. Because the person who takes the place of the Son of God and speaks for him is not the Pope, but the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus says in John 14, verse 26. Amazingly, when the numerical value of the letters of this Latin name are added in the Latin number system, the total is 666. Yes, Pastor Jensen. Yes. Oh, yes. That's, that's right. On Philly, the second F-I-L-I-I, the a second I needs to have uh, a one. Thank you. I hadn't noticed that. That's important. Uh, and by, the, the first I in Philly. Yeah. And by the way, in... Um, if you want to know what this translates, in the Latin language, when the, wor- when the word ends in I, like fili and de, it's a genitive. So in other words, vicarius fili de means vicar of the Son of God. I don't know if you understand what I mean by genitive. It means, uh, you know, possessive. Yes, the possessive. In other words, uh, fili uh, is, is really the genitive. It means of the Son of God. And so I believe that the number of the beast is uh, 666 and the name uh, is Vicario Fili Day. I hope that you read the sheet called The Venerable Day of the Sun. You know, when we went to uh, Europe a couple of years ago, my wife and I, I was just amazed at the number of images and works of art that have sunbursts all over the place. You know, it was like it was like walking into a pagan temple. The tonsure, you know what the tonsure is? The bald spots the priests make on top of their head? It's round. It's not because the priests of the sun god in Babylon tonsured their heads. The reason why the wafer is round and gold color is because it's a symbol of the sun. It's amazing. And of course, the main insignia of this system is the Sunday. Because the Sunday, by, if, listen, if this system could change the law of God, it would have to be God. Right? And it's interesting, the day of the sun, plus all of this fascination, fascination and obsession with the sun shows that this system is a system that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 13. Do you understand the lesson tonight? Okay, very good. Next time we'll discuss the battle of Armageddon. No quiz tonight. You can go home and sleep well. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your holy word. I realize, Lord, that many of these things are very surprising to some of the people who are coming. But I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will speak to their hearts and give them the courage to accept the truth as it is in Jesus. Because ultimately, it's all about Jesus, about being loyal to him, about obeying him because we love him so much, about worshiping only him because he's our creator and our redeemer. We ask, Lord, that you will bless us as we go to our homes, protect us from harm and danger, and, Lord, we ask that you will bring us all together once again to worship you on your holy Sabbath. Thank you for uh, the privilege of speaking with you, and thank you for hearing us, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.